Welcome to Tabled Fables, a podcast about fairy tales. This month, we meet the most iconic princess of all, Once Once Upon upon a a Time. So there was once a man who was happily married to a beautiful woman. They had a gorgeous child named Cinderella, and unfortunately, the mother died, as all mothers do in fairy tales. (laughs) So in comes stage left stepmother and they the mother and her daughters lived very comfortably and very lavishly and made cinderella do all of the work around the house and uh they did not treat her nicely and so i think one day there's a ball for um fancy people in the area and the prince invites the stepsisters. And the stepsisters are primping and getting super excited. And Cinderella asks, oh, like, could I come? And of course they say, no, no one would want you. You're so ugly. Not true. They're just jealous. So Cinderella is a little bit bummed. Um, she's crying. When poof, out of the night comes the fairy godmother, who's a very grandmotherly, maternal, plump figure um, with a wand. Um, and, this, and the fairy godmother's like, nah, you should really go to this ball. You know, the prince is having, I think you'll have a good time. I'm going to hook you up with a carriage. Um, you know, maybe some white horses. And Cinderella's like, no, no, I couldn't. You know, that's too much for me. And she's like, no, girl, and you're going to get a great dress. So then she goes to this ball and is having a really great time. She's like the hottest one there. And who does she meet? None other than the prince who's so into her. And they're like having a dance. They're having a vibe. And then the prince is like, when can I see you again? And then when she looks at her pocket watch or I don't know what they had in in those days, she realizes it's almost midnight, which I think is the expiry time. So she's running, running, running. She couldn't let the prince see what's going to happen to her. Um, And she's running down the staircase. And in the midst of her her panic, she drops one of her slippers. And so the prince grabs it and is like, okay, you know, I'm going to find her. I think I'm in love with this woman. And there's no Google, so he's got to go around via horseback with his helper dude and go all over the town, making, like, every woman try on this glass slipper. They end up going to the, the Cinderella's family's estate, and the, step-parent, the stepmother and stepsisters who saw her at the ball but weren't quite sure if it was her are trying to make sure she doesn't come in. They're trying to hide her. Um, but... The prince's little helper man spies her in the backyard or something like that and says, you there, you need to come try on the slipper. And Cinderella says, no, no, no. And he's like, no, 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 you must, you must. And of course, it fits perfectly. Um, So he calls the prince over. The prince comes rushing and he realizes it's her. And the stepmother and the stepsisters are crying. They're so upset, so bitter. And then um, Cinderella leaves with the prince and they live happily ever after. I'm Amy Kraft. And I'm Sophie Bushwick. We just heard Cinderella, a tale that has been told all over the world for hundreds of years. It's so well known that people have compiled books of the different versions, and it has its own tale type. So this month, we're going to look at two different tales of the same tale type, Tales of the Persecuted Heroine. We also spoke with Ruthie Bodigheimer, and I'm a research professor in the Department of Cultural Analysis and Theory at Stony Brook, the State University of New York. I do textual detective work, putting texts next to each other and then sorting out sort of, you know, forensic in the sense that who says what and when do they say it and, and what does that mean? To prepare for the podcast, 
we watched the Disney version of Cinderella. Yeah, we did see that last night. And I will say that after after about 20 minutes of criticizing the story for all of its superficialities, we, we kind of got into it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought it was entertaining. Something about the singing mice. Yeah, something about those mice that sounded like chipmunks. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Disney version, which is taken from the Perot version of the tale. And, you know, we have a very passive Cinderella, um, someone who doesn't kind of take matters into her own hands when someone knocks her down or, or when the stepsisters yell at her. And she cries an awful lot, like way too much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think it emphasizes the weak female character, which is not something that I think is good. You've got a good point. I feel like throughout the movie and throughout this sort of more famous version of Cinderella, every time she has the chance to take an active part, she doesn't do anything. And as passive as you think Perrault's Cinderella is, she is, in fact, more active than the Grimm Cinderella because the Perrault Cinderella is very playful and says to the, to the officer who comes to try on the shoe, oh, may I try on the shoe? Whereas in the Grimm version and the Disney version, she's pretty silent. The Grimm's had changed nothing in the tales that they had collected. That's what they said, and that's what everybody also repeated. And they had only made one kind of change, and that was to enliven the tales by changing indirect speech to direct speech. And as I read the tales, I didn't see that as far as women were concerned. What I saw was that from one edition to another, the women were talking less and less, and the men were talking more and more. A lot different than the more active Cinderella-type character in in the uh, story Catskin, which is the story that we're going to discuss next month as as the second part of the series that we're talking about. Yep, so. this is a two-part podcast, so <laughs> hold on to your hats. Let's just talk a little bit about the fairy godmother, because the fairy godmother isn't, <laughs> fairy godmother isn't common in all of the versions of the story, right? Right. It's actually less common to have a fairy godmother. Usually you've got an animal helper or a magical plant, and a lot of times that helper or or plant is is tied in some way to the mother. So the tale will say that the girl's dead mother, you know, transformed into a cow or the girl's um the girl plants a, a in in the grim version, she asks her father for a hazel branch and she plants it on her mother's grave and waters it with her tears and she goes to that tree and sings when she wants help and then birds come out and provide her with all the things she needs, like dresses and all the things she needs to go to the ball. And it also helps her escape when she's running away from the ball afterwards. Yeah, and I feel like there's there's a, a two-part reason for that. And it, we also we have some sort of a, a maternal figure for the girl who's watching over her um, and we feel like she's being taken care of in that sort of way. And then she also has the, the guidance of this maternal figure. In fairy tales with the fairy godmother, the fairy is only female, and they come from nowhere, they do their thing, and they go back. Now, why female? And my understanding, after thinking about this for a long time, is that fairy tales with fairy godmothers are a secular version of Marian legends from the Middle Ages in which Mary, the Virgin Mary, appears to solve a suffering woman's problems. And that Marian legend genre dies out, but the fairy godmother one 
emerges. I like the idea of having, you know, some sort of symbolism for the mother, remembering the mother in there and also having, you know, this connection um, with nature, too, which is another thing that was emphasized in the Disney version. The connection with the animals. Connection and... with animals, connection with nature, because the, the mother is reincarnated as a willow tree or something like that. And it kind of goes back to the when we were talking about Hansel and Gretel, uh, Maria Tatar mentioned how important it is, how one of the lessons she thought one of the lessons of the tale was the importance of forging allies with nature, of finding animal helpers or finding a way to live with nature and um, nature with a capital N, you know, to sort of coexist with the wild world. And you see that again where you've got Cinderella's who have this connection with animals or with plants or with, you know, the ability to, to call various uh, – to, to forge alliances with natural creatures. Because this isn't the first fairy tale that we've seen where the protagonist is forging alliances with, you know, nature in some way. Can we talk about the accessories in Cinderella? Sure. So the version everyone knows, there's a glass slipper. But there are other kinds of shoes in different Cinderella stories. Sometimes it's it's a ring. Sometimes it's a different accessory. So what does it mean that that Cinderella has this perfectly fitting accessory that fits only her that is the key to her identity? Get away from me. I'll make it fit. <laughs> well, I, I think that, I, I don't know, what I saw it as is a kind of like the perfect accessory was sort of the metaphor for the perfect marriage. You know, when a girl wants to get married, she wants to find the perfect match. And um, so the, the, you've got the positive example of the father's first marriage to, to Cinderella's mom. That's a That was a good match. But the father's second marriage to the stepmother and her horrible stepchildren, that's a bad match. That's a false match. And I feel like there's this um, – the contrast in a lot of these stories between a good matches and bad matches, and the same goes for the accessory. Good matches is Cinderella. The, the item fits perfectly. Not only that, but it fits her alone. And in, in the Grimm's version, the stepsisters try and try to get the shoe to fit. It doesn't fit. They mutilate their own feet to get it to fit. But that's a false fit. Speaking of the accessories and the different shoes, a woman named Marianne Rolfe Cox, who is a, a woman in London, was in the Folklore Society in the 1800s. And she wrote a book called Cinderella, which analyzed tales from all over the world. And she wrote down about 345 different variants of the tale and noted that of all the versions she collected, only six of those actually talked about a glass slipper. Hmm. So the glass slipper is kind of a not-so-well-known thing that was only popularized by Charles Perrault um, and the Disney version. And some people actually say that Charles Perrault didn't mean to say glass slipper when he was writing it down, and he made a mistake um, because there's verre, which is the French word for glass, and there's verre, which is kind of like squirrel fur. <laughs> and I guess someone said that, that Perrault copied a previous French version of the tale um, which said that the, the woman was wearing pantoufles en verre, which is slippers of white squirrel fur, which sound a lot more comfortable than glass slippers. Now, the first time that that confusion emerged and was alluded to is in something that Balzac wrote in the 19th century. And so it's really an artifact of that. I, the, and the glass slipper part, uh, you need to see in the context of glass itself in the 17th century when 
a, a huge range of luxury objects and, and of, a, of amazing intricacy were created. But that's not the only kind of, of footwear. She did have different forms of footwear depending on um, where the story was told. A lot of them had her in golden shoes. Uh, some people had her in like beautifully jeweled shoes of some sort. And then there was a Danish version, which I thought was interesting, which put Cinderella in galoshes <laughs> so she, over the golden slippers so she didn't get all muddy when she was riding along in the, in the woods. That's so practical. It is practical. A lot of the versions of the tale, it's interesting to see how prevalent it is in all these different cultures. There are versions from China and versions from India, and it's interesting how recurrent the story is. I mean, all over the world. You said she collected 345 variants, and I, I mean, do, do we, is it, I guess it's not really possible to tease out when the first one came around because of the oral tradition. We don't know exactly when the first version of the story was told, but we do have historians that believe that it was originally recorded in the first century B.C. The story that is in Strabo, who was a Roman traveling in northern, uh, northern Africa, and Strabo went, had a, a tour guide who took him to look at some pyramids, and the tour guide said, now... Over there is the pyramid where, in which the remains of the uh, famous, uh, what's her name, Rhodopsis, uh, are. And here's her story. And then comes a story about how a pharaoh was sitting under a tree giving judgment, and an eagle flying over dropped a shoe in his lap, and he said, oh, I have to have uh, the person whoever, whose shoe this is. So he finds Rhodopsis and they get married. Now, the only thing about this is the shoe. There are actually a lot of stories in this period that is around the time, the turn of the millennium, that involve an eagle dropping something into somebody's lap. The only thing that has to do with Cinderella is the fact that a shoe is, is part of it. So a lot, for a long time, folklorists and literary critics have thought, because the motif is there, that means the whole story is there. And that is not really a valid way of looking at literature where there is so much more than just a single motif. There are the motivations, what makes the story go forward, and what the whole plot line is about. A lot of people think that's the first known version of the story. But there are so many different varieties of this tale, and it's been told in so many different ways. There are versions with a, a male Cinderella, too. There's there's a version called The Story of the Black Cow, um, in, in in which comes from the Himalayas, where it's a little boy who's persecuted by his stepmother and, uh, and starved by her. And he's helped out by a black cow that's sort of... That's his animal helper, and he ends up marrying a princess at the palace instead of instead of a benighted Cinderella finding a prince. So I thought that was kind of cool, the idea that it's not necessarily gender-specific. I mean, I think the vast majority of Cinderellas are girls, but it's kind of cool that there's some guy Cinderellas in there. Yeah, and some of them are kind of gruesome as well. Some of the Ooh. stories, we have the Grimm's <clears throat> brothers where they the stepsisters get their eyes pecked out um, at the end. yeah. And Very they, symmetrically, too. They, they enter the church on either side of Cinderella when she's going to get married, and birds peck out one of their eyes. And then when they're leaving the church, birds peck out the other one. <laughs> it's fairly dark, but I guess that's, that's what the Grimm's were about. <laughs> 
Yeah, and so let's mention briefly a few of the other um, versions of the tale. I know some interesting ones. My, my favorite that I found um, out of all of them was a Scottish version of the tale called Ration Cody. And it's uh, the story's a little bit different. We've got uh, a father and a mother, and they have two daughters. And um, they favor the eldest daughter. And the younger daughter, Ration Cody, is kind of the no one really cares about her. And they want to keep her in the dark. And so they don't feed her. But there's this calf that um, Ration Cody befriends. And the calf always takes her away into the woods for these great big feasts. And she comes back and she's like hefty, a hefty lassie, <laughs> you know, um, and <clears throat> and looks more and more beautiful every time. And then the the parents eventually at some point they say, OK, we have to like kill this calf because this calf keeps helping Ration Cody. So so they say they tell the, the beautiful daughter, you're going to have to kill your calf and they go to to like chop the head off of the calf and the calf and Ration Cody um, conspire together to actually kill the other sister instead. And then they ride off together into the woods um, and then find the king's palace and become servants in the palace. And at some point um, that the uh, the king ends up marrying her. Good for Rash and Cody. I feel like each different person who wrote it down added their own stamp on it. Like when Charles Perrault wrote it down, he was drawing from an oral tradition of Cinderella stories. He wasn't like coming up with it out of a whole cloth. But his version is the one with the pumpkin carriage and the fairy godmother and the glass slipper that became the, the most famous version that we have now. And other versions like there's – um I think you, you said the earliest recorded version is from 850 A.D., it was it's from China, and you've got the hero Ye Shen. She's helped by a magical fish, and she's identified by a golden shoe. There are several examples of, of European fairy tales that go to Southeast Asia, and the fairy godmother figures or the magic helper figures are replaced by fish. What's it mean? It's a kind of cultural nativizing that makes a new story understandable in a new culture when it appears for the first time. I think that one's really interesting because it's it's quite different, but also it's got these similar, it hits all the same points. And you've got the Grimm brothers, uh, the Grimm brothers, Ashenputtel, and she's got the, her helper is a hazel tree and birds. And then my favorite version is the version called Catskin, or it's also, there are different versions of this tale called Catskin, Donkey Skin, and All Fur, but it's actually a subset of Cinderella stories, and we're going to talk about them next month in the second part of our podcast, but I, I thought we, we should probably explain what tale types are. Yeah, let's talk about the Arne Thompson tale type index list. We talked about how there are many different Cinderella tales in many different cultures, but they all really fall under the umbrella of Cinderella stories. So they are all tale type 510, the tale type of the persecuted heroine. But the tales of Cinderella are called tale type uh, uh, R. Thompson tale type 510A, and Catskin type tales are called uh, R. Thompson 510B because they have enough differences and there are enough of a distinction between them that they get two subsets. With all these kinds of tales, when Arna and Thompson, Arna first, started to try to make a, um, a catalog of all the tales that existed in the world, he started with Grimm's Tales. Then he was joined by Thompson somewhat later, and Thompson added a great many tales to the beginning structure that was the Grimm collection. 
and yeah, there was Cinderella was was the persecuted heroine, and and then Catskin, which is a similar story. We've got the similar tale type, but it's so incredibly different. Oh yeah, you've got a heroine who instead of sitting back and letting everything everything happen around her, takes an active hand in her destiny. She's persecuted by a father and not by a stepmother. She is also domestic, interestingly. She she has great dresses and a enormous fur cloak and and she also wins a prince with a perfectly fitting accessory, but the way she does it, in my opinion, is, is much more proactive and much more interesting. Yeah, so we'll talk about that one uh, next time. That's part two of this series when we discuss cat skin. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, you can visit us on our website at tabledfables.tumblr.com, and you can email us at tabledfables at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is tabledfables. See you next time. <laughs>